Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banter Podcast, Episode 8. This is your host, Ben Cohen. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Luciano. We've got a huge episode for you today. Firstly, we're going to be talking about the Joe Biden Tory developments. It's an interesting uh, and disturbing, distressing story that's ongoing, and there's more and more information coming out. So we're going to have a quick chat about that. Then we're going to move to our interview with ProPublica's Jessica Huseman and talking about photo fraud. So, Mike, big day today. Big day. Big day. Jessica Huseman, uh, if you're big into political Twitter, you probably follow her. Um, she's the lead reporter for ProPublica's election land. And in an election year where there's a pandemic and where primaries are being postponed or canceled and there's speculation as to what voting will look like in November in the era of coronavirus, we thought it'd be a good idea to have on Jessica. We'll talk about voting by mail which a lot of people think is the solution for voting during the pandemic. But Jessica will explain that there are some massive logistical challenges involved in that and why we'll need in-person voting in November. And we're also going to discuss so-called voter roll purges and whether voting machines can be trusted and how safe they are from hackers. And I got to say, it, it's an extremely enlightening interview. Jessica knows her stuff as well as anyone on this topic, and we definitely got an education on the mechanics of holding an election, especially processing mail-in ballots, which, again, everyone's been talking about in an era of staying at home and social distancing. So definitely stay tuned for that. Yeah, no, it was an absolutely fascinating interview. So, uh, again, just to echo your comments there, highly worth – I mean, I barely – I didn't really say much. I just, just list, sat back and listened. It was it was extremely interesting. Um, so please you know, stay, stay on um, after we finish up with the Joe Biden story. Uh, which we'll get to now. So the Biden story has uh, it's taken on a new the new twists and new turns in the in the ever changing story. But last week, so two more people came forward to corroborate part of Tara Reid's story. Um, they spoke to Business Insider. It was Linda Lacasse, who was a former neighbor of Tara Reid's, um, and another woman called Lorraine Sanchez, who worked with Reid in the California State Senator. Both of them in the mid nineties. According to the story, business side of the story, Lacasse, so she corroborated Reed's story by saying that Reed had told her that this had happened to her in the mid 90s, that Biden had been forcefully, had forced her up against the wall and digitally penetrated her and said that <clears throat> Reed was pretty distraught about the whole thing. And um, then Lorraine Sanchez said that Reid had mentioned being harassed by her former boss while she was working in D.C., and but did not recall an alleged sexual assault incident. Biden has now addressed, sort of, he's been quiet about this, and surrogates have been speaking for him, but Biden addressed the allegations on Morning Joe with Mika Brzezinski. Biden was unequivocal. He said, it's not true. He, this is a quote, he said, I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't, it never happened. So what to make of this? It's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's very, very messy. I don't personally, I don't quite know what to make of it. I don't want to say that Tara Reid is lying per se. I have no idea. But I do feel that Reid is an extremely unreliable witness for a number of reasons. Um, Mike, do you have any thoughts on this yourself? I think we're in the same boat on this. Uh, when it comes to a he said, she said, of this nature, I just don't feel comfortable taking a side when I have no evidentiary basis for making a determination. I, I'm not going to try to parse Reed's allegation. I'm not going to speculate about the timing of her claim, what her motives might be. 
or you know which people she told about this alleged incident and when. The fact is, it's impossible for anyone but those two uh, to have an informed opinion. And look, odds are, if a person says they were sexually assaulted, they're probably telling the truth because number one, it's not an easy thing to come out and say publicly. And number two, statistically, we know this to be the case. There was a paper by the National Sexual Violence Resource Center from 2012, and it indicated that of all sexual assaults reported to police, something like between 2% and 10% were found to be false accusations. And, you know, many women who publicly allege assault don't do so with police. You know, they do so on Twitter or on, you know, a TV show or, or wherever. So maybe the percentage of false reports among, you know, that group is higher. But I'm willing to assume that a vast majority of people who claim in any setting they've been assaulted or telling the truth. But when it comes to individual cases, we're no longer dealing with abstract odds. We're dealing with real people. And if there's, you know, a 5% chance, say, that an accused person is actually innocent, I'm not just going to say, yup, he's definitely, but that's the attitude, or it was the attitude before Biden was accused. Believe women is a, or was, a key aspect of the Me Too movement. And the idea is as simple as it sounds. If someone says they were sexually assaulted, then that person is to be believed, even if the accused denies it. Personally, I've always been apprehensive about this, because even though the proportion of false allegations is small... It's not nothing. I'm not saying we should automatically be skeptical of accusations or that an accuser should be attacked or disrespected, but we should be careful about reflexively believing all accusations. And my last point here, if you go by that standard, you would have to conclude that Joe Biden committed sexual assault. And many of the people uh, who so vehemently screamed, uh, believe women just two short years ago, not even, and now find themselves in the awkward position of having to explain why this standard should not be uh, afforded to Tara Reid. And it looks really hypocritical, especially coming, you know, a year and a half after the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh, where outraged uh, liberals tried to derail his appointment to the Supreme Court over like a 30 plus year old sexual assault allegation when he was a teenager. And doubting his accuser, was considered tantamount to like enabling rape culture or making her relive the trauma. And I hate to say it, but a lot of liberals look bad here and they deserve to look bad. Yeah, I think, you know, I, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I will say that um, the Brett Kavanaugh, you've, there is a, there's obviously, there was a context that the context behind the Brett Kavanaugh hearing is, is I think relevant here as well, that, it, you know, this was enough, this was a guy that Trump was ramming through to the Supreme court. And Trump was the sort, you know, he was the sexual assault candidate. He had, I think, 25 women accusing him of sexual assault, you know, calling women pigs, dogs, slobs, a history of misogyny, a history of abuse towards, alleged abuse towards women, and make that make that clear. I mean, I, I tend to think that if once you, if you have 25 accusers alleging sexual assault or rape, I think there's something behind it. And I think that Kavanaugh was kind of like the final straw. It was like, okay, look, we've got a basically a sexual predator as a president, and now you're ramming through a woman, a, a man who's dedicated himself to denying women women's reproductive rights and who has a you know in, in my view it was a credible witness a credible accuser in um uh, blazy ford 
such Christine Blasey Ford. I felt she was she was very credible. But yeah, you know, having said that, I think you're right. I think that Kavanaugh deserved a fairer hearing than than, than Democrats were willing to give him. And I think yeah, some of the, you know it does look hypocritical now. And I count myself as some as someone who possibly could look hypocritical here. Although I did carefully sort of look through the Brett Kavanaugh case and i felt that if you look at the 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 witness there was there are key differences and this is where what i think is relevant um now is that you know tara reed is just not a credible witness by by any standards and i'm not this doesn't mean to say that she's lying i don't want to say that she wasn't sexually assaulted i think that people who are calling her a liar and calling her a fraud and calling her you know abusing her on twitter i think that i don't think that's I don't think that's right. I think that's not not good behaviour. But I do think it's fair and reasonable to go through her history and look at whether she is a credible witness. Judging by the evidence, it looks like in, in a in a court case, it would be. I think it would be thrown out fairly quickly. I mean, she's the fact that she's changed her story a number of times. The fact that her brother um, changed his story. He he Reed said that she told her brother. Her brother talked to the Washington Post and said, yeah, you know, Biden uh, touched her neck and shoulders. And then after being contacted by um, a a far left columnist, um, Nathan Robinson, who then reminded him to go back and tell the Washington Post that, that in fact, Biden had sexually assaulted her. So then he texted back the Washington Post and said, actually, yeah, he, you know, he put his hands up her skirt and digitally penetrated her. You you know, so what, again, that, that's very trouble. That's troubling because, one thing that he alleges is harassment or, you know, inappropriate touching. And the second is sexual assault. You know, one is a prison sentence and one is nothing. You know, and Tara Reid's story has changed. There are so many aspects of her story that have changed that it's impossible to sort of, and again, it doesn't mean to say that it, it didn't happen. It just means to say that you can't, when you weigh up the evidence, when you weigh up her credibility with what she's saying now, you know, which version do you, do you take? Do you take this version? Do you take the one last year? Do you take the one uh, before that? I mean, the, the key, the change is obviously from her, it's gone from harassment to sexual assault. And that, there's a key difference there, a big difference there. I understand why she may not have wanted to talk about it in the past, but if you have two different stories, it does undermine your kind of credibility as a witness. And that's just, I'm not talking about this from a a personal point of view i'm just talking about this from a kind of an objective point of view that in itself is troubling and that you know there's all the the stuff about there's a lot of things that have been uncovered about reed's history of um you know there's a there's a story circulating at the moment about there's a non-profit that she worked for that she stole from there's a horse rescue that she that she worked for um and basically defrauded them and took took money she stole raffle tickets, I think it was, and also um, basically stole, I think it was, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was a significant amount of money, enough so that the owner of the nonprofit has been active on Twitter and sending email receipts um, and email exchanges with her to various reporters, proving, you know, showing pretty unequivocally that Reed is, you know, she she did, she did take that money and didn't and hasn't denied it. But then Reed has also been going, on Twitter, accusing the nonprofit of you know abuse of abuse and neglect of animals, and there's no evidence of this either. You know, I did some research into that, and there's no evidence that this this horse rescue uh, it has an impeccable record as a nonprofit. So she's making up accusations. She's defrauded them. She's made up accusations about them. You know, she's deleted stories that she's written in the past. 
with with different versions of events. She's praised Joe Biden on Twitter. She praised Joe Biden a number of times on Twitter in 2017, and then all of a sudden, kind of completely changed personality and became a militant Bernie Sanders supporter and anti um, anti Biden, anti you know centrist Democrat and very pro Russia. And then in 2019, changed the st- became again like switched back to being. Uh, more moderate, um, disavowing Putin, uh, then that all coincided with her changing story on Biden. So again, what does this mean? I have no idea, but it means that that she's not, she's just not a stable person. And I don't know how, how do you take her word seriously when it's just that her history is so littered with inconsistencies and well, crimes, you know, she's, she's stolen money from, from non-profits. I mean, that's, that's bad. That's really bad, and I think that undermines her credibility as a witness. If if Christine Blasey Ford had done the same thing, it would have been over. There would have been no Senate hearing. So that's my take on on, on the on the issue. So I think that these are all it's they're all valid points. They're all valid discussion points to, to to talk about this and to put this whole thing in context. What does this mean? I don't know. I really don't know. And it's like one of the things I don't want to, you know, do I think it happened? I just don't know. I have no idea. And I think that that. You know, anybody who says they know what happened is it's just I, I don't see how you can say that because you weren't there. It's a he said, she said. Yeah, I think it's fair to bring up what you've just brought up. By the way, I want to make it clear that I was not saying that Brett Kavanaugh did not get a fair confirmation hearing. I brought it up to juxtapose it with how liberals are treating this allegation against Joe Biden. So I'm not saying that that he didn't have a fair confirmation hearing. You are completely within your rights, I think, to bring up Tara Reid's uh, credibility. That's totally fair. But again, that's anathema to the whole believe women mantra. You know, a lot of times victims in the in the Me Too movement, like they would speak favorably about the person who allegedly assaulted them after the fact. And we Mm. would hear things about how there's the media wants this person to be the perfect victim because you could poke holes in their story. I remember one in particular about a, it was the, the university of Columbia student who alleged rape against a, another student. And she made headlines for dragging her mattress from class to class as a form of protest of university inaction on the matter. One of the things that was pointed out in the accused's defense was the fact that he produced messages between the two of them after this alleged incident that showed they were just very friendly exchanges. And people were pointing to this as potential, well, I guess, yeah, potential evidence that Maybe this didn't happen. Maybe this guy is telling the truth mm. because how do you how do you explain this? If she had been traumatized in such a way, why would she still act friendly toward him? And that's when we heard the, you know, from from the Me Too people, you know, they would say, well, you don't know how an individual assault victim will react. And I think you could say this if that's the attitude you're going to take, you can say the exact same thing about Tara Reid. But moreover, we're talking about credibility here. What about Joe Biden's credibility? Because that doesn't seem to be factoring in here at all. I mean, Joe Biden has, he's lied, he's distorted the truth, 
His record is very spotty on this. I'll just list a few examples. I mean, his first, and this has this has nothing to do with Tari, just like Tari's, you know, alleged theft from a nonprofit has nothing to do with this case. But if we're going to play the credibility game in this in this way, uh, Biden's first presidential campaign failed because he he was busted for plagiarizing speeches. He also lied uh, about the point to which he supported the Iraq war. He said he was against it the moment it started. That wasn't true. He lied about supporting the bankruptcy bill about the, the car crash that tragically killed his first wife and child back in the early seventies. Biden said on multiple occasions, they were killed by a drunk driver, which wasn't true. And the crash wasn't that guy's fault. And Biden finally stopped saying that they were killed by a drunk driver after his daughter asked him, to stop saying that. And lastly, I guess, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but Biden told a story, I think it was in New Hampshire last year on the campaign trail about going to Afghanistan to give a medal uh, to a Navy captain for heroism. And he finished the story by saying, uh, that is God's truth, my word as a Biden. Well, according to the Washington Post, Every almost every detail in that story was wrong. The span of like just a couple of minutes, he got he got like almost everything wrong. He got like the military branch wrong. He got the time wrong. He got the location wrong. He got the the act that preceded the medal wrong, and he got the the medal wrong. He got the name of the medal wrong in this story as well. And he also got wrong, like his own role in this medal presentation ceremony. So what do those instances say about Biden's credibility? And even if you, if you chalk this up to uh, an innocent misremembering uh, to that, I say, you know, well, what if he's misremembering his interaction with Tyreed Reid 27 years ago? I mean, look, I, I think that's a little unfair. I think that also um, I take the points about Biden's, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that he's said on, that haven't that turned out to not be true or accurate. But you, you, there's a key difference here is that Biden isn't accusing someone of sexual assault here. So it's Tara Reid who's accusing Joe. If, if Joe Biden was accusing somebody of sexual assault or assault, right, then you'd look at Biden as a witness and you'd say, OK, well, Right. This is, you know, let's, let's kind of look at take a look at his past and how good his memory is and what are his stories about this? Are they consistent or not? And I think you could probably, you know, you'd make a you'd make a good argument that Biden is not necessarily a credible witness. But this is we're talking about Tara Reid here making we're looking at her as a, as her charge, a criminal charge against someone. So the, there there is a difference here. And I think that also, I mean. You know, Biden's one of the most vetted politicians in America. The guy's been vetted to death. I there was a piece that was David Axelrod wrote a piece recently about um, the the vetting that went on when when Obama was vetting uh, Biden uh, or vetting vice presidential candidates, and they went over this guy's record with a tooth comb. And you know these are some of the smartest, sharpest lawyers you know in America, and they're not they're going to find something if there's there's any dirt on this guy they're going to find it and they found almost nothing well nothing nothing that would have prevented him from being vice vice president so i think that you know and then there's also this case about so you know reed's story has changed 
turned again. So she said she made a complaint um, against Biden in the Senate. And uh, then she's now changed that story and saying, well, it wouldn't have contained any of the words about harassment or or sexual assault. Right. So and and so it it turned from being she filed a complaint about about harassment to to the Senate, uh, to her bosses, which they've all denied um, all of them. Everyone who's worked for Biden said it never happened. And then now she's saying that, well, actually, the wording of it wouldn't have mentioned assault or, or harassment. So, you know, and Biden's been, I think Biden is, is being fairly open about this and said, OK, well, let's search the Senate records. We, I'm, I'm up for doing that to find out whether there's any credibility there. Um, so I'd be curious to see whether they dig anything, whether they dig, dig anything up. But it's, it's interesting that Reid has changed her story on this again. And she seemed to have kept detailed notes about everything other than the reason why she was why she claimed that she was fired. So, you know, there, there is, I think, a, a difference here. I'm not going to take like I want to look at circumstantial evidence. I want to look at all the evidence. What does Biden say? But whether Biden says it, did, it, it, it didn't happen. I want to dig through what Reid is saying because she's making the accusation. Uh, I, I, I think that Biden's uh, Biden's history of of you've got to look at his history of has anybody else accused him of sexual assault? Like nobody else has accused him of sexual assault. There's been it's been inappropriate, you know, boundary, you know, touching people's shoulders and kissing them in the in the in the back of the head, but that's a far cry from sexual assault. So I think you know if you're going to investigate this, you have to look at Reed, the, the circumstantial evidence surrounding Reed, and and her character and her. And her story over time, you know, again, Biden is de- most definitely like all politicians. You know, he he's a he's a bullshit artist. Um, I think, comparatively speaking, Biden's you know relatively good compared to most politicians out there. The guy's a kind of he's a nonstop gaff machine. You know, I personally wasn't he wasn't my pick for for president, so I've never been a huge Biden fan myself. But I think he's universally sort of recognised as a decent guy. And that's on from 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 everyone, um, women, men, Republicans, Democrats. They, he's very well liked, and and this thing seems would be completely out of character for him, and almost kind of cartoonishly evil, where he slams her up against the wall in the Senate office, and sexually assaults her. It just seems to me. It just seems it's outlandish, and I'm not again not saying it didn't happen, but I think it's fair to. You know, you've got to look over the evidence with the tooth comb here, and and figure out you know how credible is Tara, Tara Reid. And to me, she's just she's not credible. And that's perfectly fine to have that opinion. Obviously, mm. it's also perfectly fine to be inclined to believe Tara Reid. It's also perfectly fine to have no opinion on the matter. I think but so. I, I think it's important just for everyone to note that. There is a limit to what they can know for sure on this. And I'm really disturbed by a lot of the people who are saying Tara Reid is a liar. And I'm disturbed by a lot of people who are sure that she's telling the truth. It it sucks to even be in this position that we're in, having to assess this information and trying to judge it for ourselves just because – there's a limit and it's, it's unknowable for us. And it just really sucks being in this position. But I think at the end of the day, not that the Biden campaign should run on this, but at the end of the day, Donald Trump has had way more accusers accusing him of 
way more serious stuff, including at least two allegations of rape by uh, his first wife, Ivana, and also E. Jean Carroll, the, the, rape, the alleged rape that occurred in the department store. Uh, and, and again, it's the same deal there. Like, I, you know, we don't know what happened in that department store. We don't know if Donald Trump, you know, raped his his first wife. So I, this stuff, I just I, I'm I'm so hesitant to, like, actually have an opinion other than we can't know for sure. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. You know, you put a gun to my head. What do I think? I say, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. I think the Tara Reid is not a credible witness, but that doesn't mean she's lying. You know, um, and I think it's 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 that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to kind of come to terms with, you, you know, so it, it's not you wouldn't necessarily if this is if this was a criminal case, you wouldn't exonerate Biden based on the fact that you he are sure he's innocent. You just think, OK, well, there's not enough evidence to convict him here. And the and the witness, the primary witness is there are some serious issues with credibility. And that doesn't mean that Biden is innocent. It just means that there is not enough evidence. It means there is there is reasonable doubt, and I think in this case there is re- there's clearly reasonable doubt. Yeah, there definitely is. Just like there was, you know, there's reasonable doubt. If we apply the standards that a jury applies, then mm. yes, there is obvious reasonable doubt here in the case of Biden. Just like if you apply a jury standard to the Kavanaugh case, there's reasonable doubt there. There's no way either of these uh, turn into a guilty verdict. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that. I agree. Absolutely. All right. So we've we've come to the conclusion that we don't know anything and that it's not really fair to have an opinion one way or the other, which is a perfect segue to our next segment, which um, is actually equally as unclear in many regards. And that's our interview with ProPublica's Jessica Huseman on voter fraud, which is a lot more complica- complicated and, and nuanced than I previously um, ever conceived of. So it was an absolutely fascinating interview. Um, with Jessica. So I highly recommend sticking around and listening to that, Um, you know, particularly given how close the 2020 election is. So yeah, on to Jessica. All right. Jessica Huseman joins us from Austin, Texas. Jessica is the lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land, which helps reporters cover voting by providing them with records, tips, and data on local election administration. She's big on Twitter, where her handle is at Jessica Huseman. She's always tweeting interesting election and politics nuggets, along with the occasional photo of her dog, Walter. So give her a follow. Thank you very much. Jessica, (laughs) thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to have you. By the way, drinking is encouraged if you're listening to this podcast or even if you are recording this podcast like we are. We're all home. We're recording this on a Friday. It's uh, it's four where Jessica is. It's five where Ben is. And if Ben's not drinking by now, he definitely should because he's been stuck in his house for eight weeks with a two-year-old who, as of just 30 minutes ago, was throwing bricks into the neighbor's yard. (laughs) That's why why we're a little bit delayed. I was a bit delayed in picking up. I had to basically uh, make peace with the neighbors, clean my child up, and uh, get back inside so I can can do do a podcast. It's a problem as old as time. Anyway... Jessica, what's it like enduring a pandemic in a state whose lieutenant governor said there are more important things than living? 
You know what? Um, I think that I'm just going to take that uh, straight to heart and run into the target I live above without a face mask on uh, and see what happens. Uh, You know what I mean? I think (laughs) everyone in the state appears to be taking this more seriously than our lieutenant governor, which blows my mind. I took my face mask off for like two whole seconds to sip some water because it's a hundred fucking degrees here. And the look I got from the store clerk was one of death. So I think maybe if we can make the store clerk, the Lieutenant governor, we would all be better off. Why do you think that is Jessica? Just quickly. Why do you think that is that the people um, take it more seriously than the elected officials do? Like I'm just, it's it's been really getting to me this question. I don't understand I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I can only speak for here, but I, you know, like my, my parents are really conservative Trump supporters and they're taking this very seriously because they're, you know, not young and my dad has a chronic respiratory condition. And so I think that they're, for them, this is a very serious event, regardless of what people are saying, because they're not, you know, they can also read the news. Um, and, and I think that politicians just have less of an incentive to, you know, admit to themselves that this actually might might be an issue, whereas people, the only thing that, you know, we've got going on is is nothing. So it's not like we can't wear a face mask um, because our political careers, I guess, aren't hanging in the in the balance. But um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been here and in Dallas and um, in a couple of towns in East Texas since all of this began. And even in really small towns, people are taking it seriously here. So it's a really odd disconnect between Texans and our leadership. It's heartening that the population is taking it more seriously than the Republican Party. That's it's great. It's wild to me for the Republican Party to say things like, oh, well, you know, our elderly population must suffer for our economy Um, because who do they think is voting for them? I like in 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 the in Texas, turnout is skewed to older voters. So I really don't know who lieutenant, the lieutenant governor thinks he's speaking to when he says things like this, because these older voters are my parents um, and folks' grandparents who are also very reliably Republican voters. So I, it, it, it mm. seems to me to be a very short-sighted political move to be willing to sacrifice you know, elderly Americans in order to get at the economy. It's, it's very Their odd. Base. Like literally sacrificing them, I think is what they're advocating, um, which is an odd, an odd thing for me to say. <laughs> what what a hell of a year to have an election, a very important one. Many states have postponed their primaries. Uh, New York straight up canceled their presidential primary. Wisconsin forged ahead with theirs a few weeks ago after some legal wrangling between the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature. We have no idea when some of these postponed primaries will be held. Uh, No idea what the situation is going to look like in November. And this is one of the reasons we have Jessica on today, because experts think we're going to have a second wave of coronavirus in the fall. And so there's been a lot of talk about the need for mail-in ballots and people wanting to see states shift toward voting by mail. President Trump poo-pooed the idea, even though he himself voted by mail, he said voting by mail is susceptible to fraud. So Jessica, I guess two questions for you to start. Um, Are mail-in ballots susceptible to fraud? And what other problems and potential problems are there with voting this way? I'm going to caveat this by saying that Trump is not wrong. 
the vast majority of fraudulent ballots that have been cast in the last decade or so have been mailed ballots, have been absentee ballots. You know, we can think about North Carolina 9 in this regard. If states do not have strong security measures for their ballots, um, like most states don't with their absentee ballots, um, then mailed ballots are quite susceptible to fraud. But in states where they have set up security structures for ballots um, that are mailed to residents, like in the five states that do all mail elections, there is very little fraud. Um, It's actually quite secure. And you can track your ballot from like the time that it is mailed to you and all the way back to its source so that you know exactly where it is at all stages. And you can see when it's been counted and if it runs into problems and you can cure them proactively. Um, But then there are states that do mail in ballots, but don't have the infrastructure for it. And so when that happens, lots of things can go wrong. The ballot could not get to the right person. It could be harvested by someone with bad intentions, like we saw in North Carolina. Um, There are lots of instances in which people mail in ballots for members of their family without that person knowing about it. Um, So I think when we say that vote by mail is subject to fraud, that is correct. But not if you implement it securely and safely and in a way that ensures that voters have autonomy over their own ballots. Just a quick detour on that. Can you talk a little bit about harvesting and what role that played in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District? Right, sure. Um, So, you know, ballot harvesting generally takes place when people go door to door to collect ballots that have been mailed to them. So it's really important that people know that your voting, like your, your information on the voter roll is public information. So political groups know who's been mailed a ballot because that information is not a secret. And so they know who they need to go collect a ballot from. And so they will knock on your door and say, I know that you voted by mail. Do you want to save your postage? I'll mail your ballot in for you. Um, And then maybe they don't mail your ballot in, or maybe they ask you who you voted for, and then they mail it in. Um, This happens at nursing homes a lot. They will come to nursing nursing homes and sort of coerce the elderly folks into voting for the candidate of their choice and then take their ballot and mail it off for them. Um, This happened in North Carolina 9. Um, A Republican political operative was going door to door and collecting ballots that you know, may or may not have ended up in the correct hands at the end of it. And data would suggest that they did not. Um, So when you do have, when you have ballots sort of out in the open um, and there are no specific laws on how they must come back or the security with which they must come back, then fraud can happen. And it does. What is the line between legal harvesting and fraud. So you mentioned that this happens at, for example, uh, nursing homes and, and the harvester, I guess, will try to coerce the residents there to vote for a certain candidate. Is something like that legal? Where is the line? Um, So it depends entirely on the state. Um, A couple of years ago, Texas passed a bunch of bipartisan measures um, to curb ballot harvesting at nursing homes um, that that makes it much more difficult to sort of collect ballots in mass. Other states have put in laws that say that 
your vote has to be witnessed by a notary and signed off on by a notary. Um, and so that's their way of getting around um, ballot harvesting issues is like they know that the notary stamped it and you signed it of your own free will. That's becoming an issue now because getting a notary in this environment is a little bit <laughs> difficult. Um, so if you want to vote by mail in a state like Oklahoma or Alabama, you still have to go get a notary in the time of a pandemic. So that's become an issue. But, you know, states have, have set up different security measures around this. In some states, there aren't very many security measures at all. I mean, that's what we saw in North Carolina, for example. That was wild to me. I didn't even know that was a thing, harvesting. I did not know a person could just go around collecting mail-in ballots and then turning them in or not turning them in. Or not turning them in. Yeah. And that's, and, you know, Arizona did this song and dance a couple of years ago where they tried to pass a law that would have made it a crime to turn in anyone's ballot that was not yours or a person in your immediate family. And that was their attempt to prevent ballot harvesting. There, there are always marginalized groups that sort of fall by the wayside when these laws are passed. So in Arizona, the big controversy around that law was um, folks on native reservations who don't have regular access to mail. And so they routinely will pick up and drop off each other's mail. And so if that were, if that law were to be enforced in Arizona related to ballot harvesting, um, then it would likely disenfranchise a lot of Native Americans there. Um, and what clerks have anecdotally told me in Arizona is that they'll just accept ballots if they're brought in and they don't really ask a ton of questions. So I don't know if that law is being enforced, but that it's on the books um, might might present some problems for folks. So this is, this is what I mean when I say that mail-in ballots are way more complicated than people think that they are. Um, and it requires an entire legal infrastructure and security infrastructure that a lot of states just don't have um, or haven't set up with the intention of doing mass mail-in ballots. They were, you know, it, it may be that their laws are, can only be enforced because there are so few. Um, and so the states that you see that have particularly draconian laws around mail-in ballots have those laws because, People don't really do mailed votes um, in those states. Talk to me a little bit about Wisconsin. My understanding is thousands of mail-in ballots that had been requested didn't even get sent out. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and some of the logistical issues that hampered voting by mail in Wisconsin. Is it a microcosm of problems seen elsewhere? Was this? I, I get the sense that this wasn't just an isolated case that this kind of thing rather happens often? Wisconsin is a really interesting um, case study because I think that Wisconsin could very well be a microcosm for other states who choose not to prepare to expand mail-in ballot options before November. Um, because if we are hit with a second wave of COVID-19 ahead of November, then we're going to be going through this all over again. And if states do not start preparing to have mass mail-in ballots now, they're going to run into a lot of the same problems that Wisconsin ran into. So Wisconsin, um, in Wisconsin, if you want an absentee ballot, you have to apply to receive an absentee ballot. Um, and 
anybody can do it in Wisconsin. It's a no excuse absentee ballot state. So you can request an absentee ballot even if you don't intend to be outside of your voting jurisdiction on election day. Um, but you do have to mail in an application. Um, Wisconsin will not just send you a ballot to the address on your that you're registered under um, because their voter roll isn't set up to do that. So in states that don't have great practices for cleaning their voter roll, it is very likely that people are on the roll that no longer live in the state or have incorrect addresses in the voter roll. And so if Wisconsin were to just send the ballots out without the additional step of making sure that they know where those ballots are supposed to go, then you could have someone else's ballot end up on your doorstep very easily. Until a week ago, I was registered to vote in New York, which is where I used to live. And so if New York mailed me a ballot because they decided to go all mail, then whoever lives in my apartment now would get my ballot. And so that's what Wisconsin is try was trying to avoid by having people fill out the application. But when you think about how quickly people ramped up to wanting mail-in ballots, it just became an impossible logistical task for the state. So I talked to one county clerk um, who told, or is actually a municipal clerk because Wisconsin doesn't run its elections at the county level. So I talked to one municipal clerk who told me that in the days leading up to the election, they had 10,000 unprocessed requests for absentee ballots. And because Wisconsin's DMV registration system isn't tied into their voter registration system, the ID requirements had to be checked by hand um, to make sure that the person filling out the absentee ballot request was that person. And so you're talking about 10,000 applications that a staff of three in this municipality have to go through by hand and enter those ballot requests into the computer by hand and then mail those ballots out to the people who've requested them by hand. So because Wisconsin didn't do any mail-in balloting or at least a significant amount of mail-in balloting, they don't have the machinery that states that do all mail-in ballots have. They don't have high-speed scanners to process applications. They don't have machines that open envelopes for you. They don't have machines that seal envelopes for you or stuff envelopes for you. So it's a lot of paper being sent out by hand. Like People get overwhelmed when they have to send out 200 wedding invitations and then get the RSVPs back. Like this is that on a massive scale. Like we're talking about millions of voters all sending in these applications. Um, and so, you know, I think that people, when they think about vote by mail, think about their part and vote by mail. Well, I just get it in the mail and then I fill out my ballot and I send it back. Like that's easy. Well, okay. But let's think about like the absolute volume of paper that this is going to require. So if we think about, let's say, Madison or something, like I have no idea how many people are in Madison, Wisconsin. Like, let's say there are 2 million people in Madison, Wisconsin, which probably is way too many. Definitely is way too many. How many people are in Madison, Wisconsin? I'm looking this up right now. Um, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, 258,000. Oh, okay. So this is actually great. Um, okay. So there are 258,000 people in Madison. Not all of them are registered to vote, I'm sure. Like there are people under the age of 18 or who aren't citizens in that. But like, let's just say 258,000. One semi truck will hold 250,000 ballots. So one semi truck will hold all of the ballots 
that are necessary for the people of Madison, Wisconsin to vote. Um, so just think about that semi-truck. But that's only the ballots. That is not the applications. That is not the envelopes. That is not the instruction manual that you send out with a ballot. That is not the return envelopes. So we're talking probably about five or six semi-trucks worth of paper for one city of 250,000 people. Um, so it is a shitload of paper. And clerks that have to go through this by hand, you know, are kind of at a loss, right? Like the clerk that I spoke to who happened to be in Madison told me that because all of these county offices were closed, they were pulling in firefighters. They were pulling in librarians. They were pulling in all of these people from all over the city who weren't doing their regular jobs just to process absentee ballot applications. So this is a major organizational feat. And the reason that we saw so many people in Wisconsin not get the ballots that they requested is because the city workers, despite working around the clock, could literally not open the envelopes fast enough to process the requests. Um, and so if we see this virus continue into the fall and vote by mail becomes a necessity in every state, if states don't start ramping up now in terms of their supply chain for paper, in terms of the staffing of these offices, in terms of sourcing out machines to make this these tasks go quicker, then we're just going to see a lot of little Wisconsin's all across the country. Uh, are the states taking this seriously, which I mean, I'm I'm guessing that at least some of them must be. Um, so I think that there's a disconnect between what's happening in national politics and what's happening in state offices across the country. Um, so, you know, you hear President Trump screaming about vote by mail um, and how fraudulent it is. And you also hear talking points coming out of Republican senators and congressmen. But almost universally on the ground um, in the states who are actually administering the elections, mm. um, People are doing what they need to do. I mean, there is there is a huge disconnect between the narrative that Republicans are running with nationally and what Republicans are actually doing on the ground. So every state has its own laws about like who can and cannot vote by mail. Like some states are no excuse. You can request an absentee ballot if you want one. Some states you have to have a list of excuses in order to vote by mail. And the secretaries of state, which is the office in most states that actually administers the elections, are expanding their mail-in ballot capabilities to the extent that they are allowed to under law. And in some states, they have advocated for the legislature to expand those authorities. So, for example, in Kentucky, there is a Republican secretary of state, and he has worked diligently with his state board of elections to expand vote by mail in Kentucky. Um, the Republican secretary of state in Georgia, um, because Georgia is a no excuse absentee ballot state, proactively mailed out absentee ballot requests to every active voter in Georgia. Um, so under the Republican secretary of state for Georgia, that state will likely see the largest increase in vote by mail in the state's history. And even in Texas, I mean, we're seeing the so the secretary of state in Texas has sort of been silent on this issue, which isn't surprising to me, because in, in Texas, counties really run the elections. The state really has no authority over the counties on, on how to tell them how to run elections. And so our attorney general is right now battling it out with the ACLU in court about whether or not the disability provision of our accepted mail-in ballots, like mail-in ballots, um, will count for everyone. Um, so the way that the law reads is that if you 
are concerned about your health, like, and that is your reason for not going to the polls, then you can get an absentee ballot. Well, in theory, everyone is concerned about their health right now. And so, and, and, and a judge seems to agree with that line of reasoning offered by the ACLU, although the, the issue is still up in the air. But even while the Republican attorney general, who has been a voter fraud conspiracy theorist for years, um, is battling it out in court, we see even Republican county clerks moving slowly towards expanding their mail-in ballot options. Because I think that the folks who actually do this work know that regardless of the state of COVID in November, people are still going to be worried. They're still going to be requesting mailed ballots. And they know that they're going to have to get those out because if they don't, then people aren't going to be able to vote. And I think that the thing that I like most about my job is that those are the people that I'm typically talking to. Like, I don't really have to engage with federal legislators because they have so little to do with ballots actually being cast. I mostly talk to state and local election administrators. And these folks are um, just really dedicated to making sure that everyone gets the right to vote. I mean, like these are, you know, your standard bureaucrats that have been doing this job and doing it well for a really long time. And they're trying to make it easy for the people that they know in their counties. Like they generally, like generally personally know their voters. They want to make it easy for these people to vote. So I think that like in reality, good sense is winning out, but you would never know that if you just listened to what Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell were saying about vote by mail. I mean, like even in Mitch McConnell's own state, like vote by mail is going to increase remarkably. I just hope these states are ready to be inundated with mail-in ballot requests as we get closer to November. Oh, I hope that they are too. And like, there's really no guarantee of that. Right. And it sounds like we're going to have to have in-person voting in November. We are. And I, and you know, I think that what I think another thing that's frustrating me about the conversation that's happening right now is that people are married to this idea that the only solution is vote by mail. And that's actually not, um, that's actually really not the case. I mean, South Korea held their election like two weeks ago and it was entirely in person and it was okay. But that was because they took extreme precautionary measures around making sure that everyone had PPE, around making sure that people were standing six feet apart, around making sure that the pollings, the poll stations were like adequately staffed. Um, and that will be difficult for the United States to recreate because our poll workers are volunteers, generally in their like 60s, 70s, 80s. And those are the exact kinds of people we don't want out in public right now. Um, we don't have dedicated space for our polls. They happen in schools and firehouses and town halls. Um, so places are going to have to get creative about where they choose to have their polling locations. But I like this can absolutely be done. So for example, if schools are not in session in the fall, that's the perfect place to hold an election in a pandemic because schools are big and they're sprawling and you can have people separated out such there's only a couple of people in every room. You can maintain social distancing. They have janitorial staffs that need to get paid. So like if we think creatively about in-person voting solutions, we can come up with them. You know, we've also got like drive up ballots, curbside voting, like all of these things are things that are already being done for certain demographics in the United States. And if we were to think creatively about scaling those up, then we wouldn't need to 
do mass mail-in voting and we wouldn't need to have everybody turn up at the polls. Like the logical solution for most states, especially states that aren't used to the logistics of mail-in ballots, is to expand mail-in ballots as much as is reasonably possible and then focus your energies on making sure that the polling locations are going to be safe during early voting and on election day and making sure that people avail themselves of things like early voting so that everybody's not showing up on Tuesday ahead of the election and making sure that people know that they can where they're supposed to vote and how and what they need to bring to the polls with them. Um, so, you know, I think that the conversation has become very much backed into the corner of people saying it's vote by mail or nothing. And I don't think that that's true. And it can't be true going into November for a lot of states. And so the sooner that voters let go of the idea that the only ballot they're going to cast is a mailed ballot, um, then I think that confidence in our elections can can increase because I think the people on the ground general generally and you know for the most part don't want voting to be difficult and they don't want voting to be dangerous. Um, so I, I think we just need to give our election administrators the space and time to come up with appropriate solutions. Let's talk about voter purges. Oftentimes okay. we have freakouts among liberals who, when they hear of a voter roll purge in Georgia or Florida or Texas, they point to this as evidence of some nefarious plot to reduce the number of voters on the rolls who vote Democrat. Is there any merit to that? You know, it, it entirely depends. Um, I think that the word purge is deeply overused. Um, so you'll recall, right, that Wisconsin needed needs to have people apply absentee, to, like apply to cast an absentee ballot because their voter rolls are not clean enough to just mail out a ballot to everyone right now. And that's good sense. Like that is good election administration, making sure that you're getting the ballot to the right place. Um, the only way that we can scale up with these progressive voting, you know, goals. So like vote by mail, automatic voter registration, um, things like that. The only way that we can do that is if the voter roll is as clean as it possibly can be. And every single person in the voter roll is associated with their current address. And every single person in the voter roll is an active voter because only when the voter rolls are clean enough to make sure that everyone on the roll is actually casting a ballot or intends to, can we start doing these things? And that it, it requires a lot of logistics and a lot of planning. Um, and states that keep their voter rolls clean do so in such a way that people are not disenfranchised. They have plenty of time to make sure that they're on the rolls. And, and I think that states do this better than people think that they do. Like list maintenance is a very difficult thing to accomplish. And I think a lot of states have been accused of purges when in fact they're just trying to do their due diligence to ensure that they're allocating resources appropriately. Um, because, you know, if you've got hugely bloated voter rolls um, with people who are double registered or people who aren't in the state anymore, or people who just don't want to vote. Um, or dead people. Or dead people. Um, you're allocating resources based on voter rolls where thousands of people may have moved or may not be voting. So you're giving inappropriate resources to inappropriate counties, and it makes election administration a lot harder. Um, so, for example, in the state of Kentucky, the previous secretary, Allison Lundergan Grimes, did not remove anyone in a, any systematic way from the rolls in almost 
almost eight years. So their voter roll right now is incredibly bloated. It is the most bloated voter roll in the country because she was so bound and determined not to disenfranchise anyone that the voter roll grew so large that it's not really clear who's voting in Kentucky right now. Um, And so what that means, like that has a lot of ramifications. So first, it's actually illegal for states to not clean their voter rolls. The Help America Vote Act sets forth pretty clear, and also the Motor Voter Act, they both set forward like pretty clear requirements for states to clean their rolls in very systematic ways. And if states don't do that, they're actually violating federal law. So Kentucky got sued in federal court, lost, and is now having to clean out more than 100,000 inactive voters from their rolls. And so what that means is right now, Kentucky doesn't know who ballots should go to. It means that they aren't confident that they have the right address for people. Um, And so Kentucky has found itself in a much more difficult position to push forward vote by mail than if they'd been cleaning their rolls for the last decade. Um, They would be much more confident that their rolls are clean and up to date. Um, And so I think that people see removing anyone from the voter roll as a purge. And I think that that's incorrect. And I think that the sooner that we can normalize the act of like making sure that this list is as up to date as possible, the better. Um, Because I think that like people on the left are really shooting themselves in the foot when they hamper states ability to clean the voter rolls and then also ask them to do things like vote by mail, because one can't happen without the other. Give us an example of a purge, like a really nefarious, diabolical purge of voters. Well, I've got one for you. So (laughs) in 2012, the state of Texas did this very ridiculous match. Um, So Texas, right? It's always going to be Texas. Always got to be Texas. I say this as a proud, lifelong Texan. The state matched the voter rolls against the Social Security Administration's list of people who had died. The voter roll is not meant to run against lists like this. So the Social Security Administration probably has your Social Security number, um, but the voter roll probably doesn't because you don't have to give your Social Security number when you register to vote. You can also give a driver's license number or something else. Um, And so they're running these matches on first name, last name, and date of birth. Well, there is more than one Jessica Hoosman born on February 11th, 1990 than just me. Just like they're like, and and the the more common your name is, the more matches you're going to hit. So like, Jorge Ramirez, born in 1972. I bet there are a thousand Jorge Ramirez is born in 1972 in the state of Texas. So people like the state sent out these matches to all of these counties saying, send a letter to these people asking them if they're dead. And so thousands of people across the state got letters who were perfectly alive and living exactly where they were supposed to asking them if they were dead and if they were like fraudulently on the voter roll. And so that pissed a lot of people off. I mean, and then again, last year in Texas, they did the same kind of bullshit match where they ran the names of all of the people in the voter roll against the DMV records for people who'd gotten licenses while they were not citizens. And that's flawed for a lot of reasons. Like the name matching issue is a problem. But then also, 
you know, you don't have to renew your driver's license except for like every decade when you're an adult in Texas. And so it is entirely possible that someone got a driver's license when they were no longer, when they were not a citizen, became a citizen and then registered to vote. And so these matches also caught those people. And so they sent out this list of like 90,000 people that they were claiming were non-citizens registered to vote, but almost no counties found any actual evidence of fraudulent registrations because they just did flawed list matching. And so the, like good list maintenance is hard to do. Um, and Texas does it badly. Let's talk about voting machines. Great. And just as with voter quote unquote purges, there's a lot of skepticism around voting machines, glitches in voting machines, hacking of voting machines, potentially. What is the integrity of the nation's voting machines overall? Obviously, they vary from state to state. What does that look like? You know, it's gotten a lot better, um, even since 2016. I think that in 2016, we realized how aged our machines were, and states have done an acceptable job of shoring up a lot of those of those problems. I think that, you know, I think that there are a lot of diehards in this space that think that voting machines should only be used by people who must use a voting machine and everyone else should cast a ballot on paper. But casting a ballot on paper does not guarantee that your vote counts as intended. And that's because ballots are designed strangely. People do not read instructions. They undervote or they overvote or they cast the ballot incorrectly. And so what happens when there is a ballot that can't be processed because the voter didn't do it correctly, another person comes in and decides what you meant by your vote. And sometimes that's not clear. So like I have gone to places that do all vote by mail and they get some weird ballots back. Like I have seen ballots that are covered in blood. I have seen ballots that someone like wrote all of their political thoughts around the edges on people vote for more than one person and then your vote doesn't just count. For, People just do yeah. Where was the blood? Was that in Texas again? No, that was in California. Um, <laughs> that was in San Diego. <laughs> no offense, no offense. I'm, I'm just poking fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I've seen a lot of weird, people do weird things with paper ballots. Um, and so I think and, and also, you know, ballots are confusing. And so if you need help casting your ballot because you don't have use of your hands or maybe your literacy is not up to snuff or maybe you don't speak English as well as, you know, the ballot requires you to and you've got a ballot in English, um, you know, there are very few remedies for you beyond giving up your ability to cast a secret ballot um, and have somebody else fill out the ballot for you and trust that they're doing it appropriately. I think voting machines make voting easier for a lot of reasons. And it, voting machines can make sure that you're filling out the ballot in the way that you should be. Because if you vote for more than one person, it's not going to let you move to the next screen. Or if you don't cast a ballot for one voter at the one office, it's going to make sure that that was your intention before you move to the next screen. And so I think like people assume that voting machines should only be for people who are disabled or something like that. But actually, like you and I, 
as people who don't often thoroughly read directions, because who the fuck does, actually do benefit from voting machines and having the ballots come out in a standard, easily readable format by machines. And so there are ways to make smart machines and there are ways to make stupid machines. And I think that we're moving closer and closer towards smart machines. But I think what's making it difficult to get there is that there are people who will accept no amount of risk in these machines. Um, And that is not a realistic premise through which to view technology. In every piece of technology, regardless of how sensitive the information going through it is, we accept some level of risk so that the machine can be easily and conveniently used and also affordably manufactured. And so we as voters have to accept some shortcoming. It's either we cast all by mail and all by paper and accept that some voters are not going to read the directions or that a clerk is going to misinterpret your vote, or we accept the remote possibility that machines could be hacked. And I think that the likelihood that people cast ballots incorrectly on paper is a hell of a lot lower than the idea that a malevolent actor could be organized enough to hack a voting machine in a way that would not be noticeable and would result in immutable changes to the elections system. And our elections simply aren't set up to make something like that statistically likely. And so if we accept the premise that we do have to accept some level of risk, then it seems to me that voting machines are still safer. Are these machines connected to the internet? Um, so that depends. Um, some machines can be connected to the internet. Some machines remain connected to the internet. And I, ES&S, um, which is a major manufacturer of machines, got in pretty big trouble a couple of months ago because they'd said that certain machines couldn't connect to the internet that ultimately could. Um, and so that was a problem. The vast majority of machines, though, are not connected to the internet, and they are also not connected to any machine, like any other machine when you're casting your ballot. So like two machines couldn't be networked together and then hacked in the same way. So generally, I mean, and there are exceptions to this, but in the vast majority of counties, the way that the that you would hack, quote unquote, a voting machine is by going to each individual voting machine and hacking them individually. Like, of course, there would be a way for you to get at the root of the machine and like hack the manufacturer directly and then put malware on all of the machines when they program them or something like that, that would require an incredible amount of organization that I would be surprised to see someone pull off. Um, but it could be done. So like these machines are networked at some point, they have to be to be programmed. Um, but at the time that you vote on them, they are not. Not to get too much into the weeds on this, but I am curious and I understand that states and counties and towns differ in their reporting but how what is the what is the main way they report so you have these machines that you just mentioned some of them are connected to the internet i assume that's because the machines are reporting them to some central authority and also is is telephone are they using email are they using some type of software like how does it work and again i know it varies from place to place but what's the layout look like there yeah, I mean, so like if we can, if we take a pretty standard state, um, so like there are states where 
the entire elections infrastructure does not produce a paper backup. So Louisiana's machines are outdated. They produce no paper, paper backup. So the only evidence of your vote exists on the machine on which you cast the ballot. And then at the end of the day, the poll workers pop the cards out of those machines and then stick the cards in another machine and then they count all the votes. But in places that do this better, which is the vast majority of states, what happens is that you cast your ballot on a machine and that machine does not hold your vote at all. It prints your vote out, and the only record of your vote is the paper copy that the machine you voted on spat out. And you look at that ballot, and you make sure that all of your things are correct. And if they're not, you can throw the ballot away and start over. Um, and if they are correct, you can put it into a little hopper. And at the end of the night, all of those ballots are counted via a high-speed scanner, and the reports are trans like are usually transmitted through some sort of secured network through to a central eight, like counting jurisdiction in a state. Um, so they are generally not sent um, over the phone. There's like internal and uh, like an intranet that they generally use um, to report these results and there are backstops for security here. So even if, for example, somehow a you know, malevolent actor got in and could change the vote tallies as they came out of the counties and to the state, the counties still have paper records of all of the votes. So if something doesn't line up at the end of the night, then they can go back and count those ballots again. And that is generally the way that this goes down, is that counties will report those numbers are conditional, and in the days after the election, they certify the results. And so that happens by sort of tracing the ballots back and, and doing audits and things like that. Got it. Um, before we let you go, one final question for you. So if Trump loses the election, but alleges voter fraud, what legal recourse does he have to cast doubt on the result? I mean, we know he'll tweet about alleged voter fraud if he loses. I mean, he won in 2016 and still made up the lie about three to five million people voting illegally. So I can only imagine what he'll say if he loses. And I'm asking you, I, I know I'm kind of asking you to put yourself in, in his place and kind of think like he does, which yeah. is a scary proposition. But if that's the route, if he loses and that's the route he wants to go, what are his options? I think... There are a couple of things that he could do to sow doubt beyond just like using his bully pulpit to, you know, kick up a fight. Um, he could demand recounts in states. Um, and we saw Jill Stein do that after 2016. Um, and recounts are costly. Um, some states will do an automatic recount if it's within a certain percentage. Um, but in, and then if it's not, then they make you pay for it and they can often be very expensive. So if Trump's willing to use his campaign funds to pay for recounts, um, then he can do that and cause a lot of havoc and like wreak a lot of destruction onto the already strapped staffing uh, levels of various county agencies. Um, so that's like one thing that he could meaningfully do. I mean, he could also, you know, I guess refuse to leave office, but I don't think that, that would work out well for him. I, like, I think that the most direct path for him to cause mayhem is to allege improprieties and not actually follow up with any of it and just let people have doubts in the system. Because the, the risk that he would run of making states do formal recounts 
is to set into stone the uh, like the votes themselves, right? They're going to recount. It is so abnormal for a recount to reverse a election that I can't even remember one um, that wasn't like an extremely local city council race. And so what will probably happen is that he'll call for a recount, the, va- the ballots will be counted, and the security of the system will be affirmed, and then he'll look like an ass. Whereas if he just says there was fraud, there was fraud, there was fraud, and floats some deeply unlikely scenarios or finds one example of fraud, even if it's a deep statistical anomaly, then he'll have a lot more ground on which to stand for at least support, even if he can't legally do anything about it. We could keep going, but I think that's a good place to stop. Jessica Huseman, lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thanks so much. And that'll do it for this week's Banter Podcast. Ben and I will be back next week. See ya.